trying to tell me oh, Bolsonaro oh. tested positive. <laughs> I see it in a tweet from a verified account. It's well, translated. Oh, so good. let's, you know, let's confirm that. But that's very, that's very exciting. Lula Libre. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah. yeah. And it looks like apparently... Dr. Bertrand, Washington Post. Yeah, this is... <laughs> and he just had dinner with Trump. <laughs> Hell yeah. You know, it's good to get some good news once in a while. There's always silver linings. Well, whoever knew that so much good could have come out of Mar-a-Lago? <laughs> Dirtbag MLK. Fingers crossed. <laughs> we may be living in hell world, but no one said the comedy was bad. Oh, shit. Yo, they hugged. <laughs> you should pull up that video of them in Mar-a-Lago before we go. We really are in uncharted waters right now. <laughs> All right. My name is Ben Burgess. This is Give Them an Argument, episode eight. In just a moment, I'm going to speaking, be speaking to Paul Prescott about a uh, excellent and really important article that he wrote in Jacobin about the Trump administration's war against organized labor. After that, uh, we're going to have a panel with uh, Harvey J.K., returning champ, uh, Daniel Bessner, and Sean Goody. Uh, about uh, Eugene V. Debs and what the socialist left can learn from its early history. And then, of course, Outlaws and Revolutionaries with uh, David Griscom. Um, if you have any questions, either for the panelists or, you know, uh, at the end, uh, please, um, for those of you in, uh, in the Zoom peanut, better, uh, peanut gallery here, please just stick those in, uh, in the Q&A. Also, um, and just remind people, as always, uh, that if you uh, join the Patreon for the cost, for the monthly cost of a milkshake at the 50s Nostalgia Diner in Pulp Fiction, I uh, can get early access to um, all of these episodes, uh, plus regular uh, exclusive essays and Discord office hours, group voice chats. Uh, and of course, um, it's, it's just a really useful form of solidarity. If you want to support uh, what we're doing here uh, allow us to pay everybody making this happen a living wage. So uh, please do do that. Uh, the clip that you just watched uh, was uh, our, our late brother, Michael Brooks, uh, reacting to the uh, possibility at the time that uh, that Donald Trump would get COVID because he'd had dinner with uh, Brazilian fascist leader uh, Jair Bolsonaro, uh, who, of course, uh, got COVID uh, and so I'm fairly sure that would have been Michael's uh, reaction. Uh, I'm quite certain that would have been Michael's reaction uh, had he lived to see this news. Uh, even though I'm, I'm often more squeamish about stuff like this, I would have texted him with great relish the second that I heard it. Um, and uh, I certainly don't want to tell anybody not to enjoy their schadenfreude, but I also think that we, um, that we shouldn't uh, count too many proverbial chickens here. Uh, because this could potentially be really dangerous. Uh, for one thing, if uh, if Trump dies, and we don't even know how they're saying he has mild symptoms, uh, we don't know what that really means. We're also told that he's been given an experimental treatment for his mild symptoms. So, uh, so who knows? Uh, but if, if he does, uh, and so uh, Mike Pence becomes the uh, the default candidate, 
uh, and and the sitting president uh, until then, uh, that could actually be worse because uh, he would be a more competent agent of the uh, of the Trump agenda, uh, and uh, he might even have a better chance in the election. I know I've heard a lot of people say, oh, don't worry about it. Pence isn't charismatic. He doesn't have the cult of personality. Uh, so the mega faithful wouldn't turn out in the same numbers for him. I'm not sure I buy that, frankly, uh, because I think that uh, if if Trump died less than a month before the election, I think the urge to, uh, to, uh, to get him posthumously uh, reelected uh, would be a tremendous uh, motivator uh, for, uh, for the bag of faithful and that a lot of suburban moderate Republicans would uh, have an easier time uh, voting, uh, voting for Pence, uh, voting for Trump, knowing that that was basically voting for Pence. I think it's a very real concern. Of course, it's all hypothetical. All we can do is speculate. Uh, but we can also talk about some of uh, what's at stake in the election one way or the other. Uh, because whether the person doing things like appointing people to the National Labor Relations Board is uh, Donald Trump or Mike Pence, uh, they would appoint union-busting Republicans, as Trump has done. Uh, in, and that's just one example of many ways that this can play out. Uh, but I am now joined by uh, Paul Prescott, uh, who uh, wrote a, um, a really interesting, uh, really disturbing, really important article for uh, for Jacobin about uh, Trump's NLRB. Welcome, Paul. Hey, Ben. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Oh, my pleasure. Um, I've, uh, I've talked to, uh, to Paul before on uh, Dead Pundits about... Um, the, uh, the legacy of, of A. Philip Randolph, uh, which is in, in many ways uh, inspiring as far as working class organizing. This is incredibly disturbing. Uh, so this is something that doesn't get a lot of oxygen from the media. We've heard a lot. You know, I mean, if you think about the number of hours uh, of, of media attention that have been devoted over the course of the last four years to hysterical, breathless coverage of every twist and turn of Russiagate, for example, uh, I don't know that I mean, I think the ratio is like 100,000 to one uh, between that mm -hmm. and anything like this. But you say in your article that in a lot of ways, the Trump NLRB uh, has waged the most aggressive assaults on organized labor in some ways that we've seen since the, uh, since the Great Depression. So you can tell us what that's looked like. Yeah, and, um, and this kind of speaks to this idea of whether Trump is competent or not, you know, in some ways I think he is a bumbling fool, but in other ways he's kind of advancing mm -hmm. a traditional Republican agenda very quickly and very effectively. And even just based on who he's appointing um, around him. And uh, you know, just for some context that the national labor relations board was established in 1935 with the Wagner act, which basically mm -hmm. gave workers the right to organize. And, um, this analogy may not be the best one, but you can kind of think of it as like a mini Supreme Court for labor. So, you know, they set presidents and they um, adjudicate cases that decide labor's um, future. And, you know, the whole, this whole agency is supposed to be something that helps workers. That is the purpose. There is an interpretation out there that, you know, the NLRB kind of just co-opted worker organizing and diluted the militants. I mean, I think that's an important perspective we should all think about, but generally by and large, you know, it's supposed to help workers and it has in the past, you know, and you know, it, it could still in the future. And so, you know, the president is in charge of appointing people to the board. And so Trump 
uh, as appointed all pro management people, people with a background in uh, defending management, no one with any background in organized labor or defending workers' rights. Um, so these are all those people. And the Chamber of Commerce literally had a wish list of 10 items they wanted, you know, that are their priorities for the future. I think they released this list in about 2017. And it included stuff like, you know, being able to give management the right to set bargaining units, limiting communication with workers, you know, limiting what they could talk about over email, things like that. Um, and so this board under Trump has pursued every single one of these wish list items. Um, some of them they've already completed. Many of them they have. Others are in progress. So, you know, they're literally doing the bidding of the Chamber of Commerce. Um, I don't know if you want me to get into some specific. Yeah, 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 absolutely. So, so one thing you mentioned in the article, uh, for example, is that under previous precedent, uh, union organizers can uh, do things like leaflet in public spaces uh, at their at their workplaces, right? So, for example, um, if you know, if you go to to Kroger, uh, you you might see like right outside the store places, uh, you know, which is still store property, but you'll have like the Salvation Army there and stuff like that. Right. Uh, and so, in the past, um, that's been that's been seen as something that uh, that unions have uh, have a right to to use for for organizing uh, are those public spaces that are available to to other groups. And you mentioned a couple of ways in the article that the NLRB under Trump has undermined that. Yeah, I mean, there's been some general bans where, you know, they'll still allow the Girl Scouts and the Salvation Army to um, be outside of, uh, you know, um, companies and, and spaces to uh, promote stuff and solicit, but union organizers are not. And um, there was a specific ruling about the, um, you know, cafeterias of public hospitals, which are public spaces. Um, and again, traditionally, Organizers could go in there to organize to talk to nurses when they're, when they're on break from their shift. Um, they got rid of the ability to do that. And I, I have a feeling it was very specific because um, nurses have actually been one of the few sectors that have been unionizing at a higher rate. Um, I mean, over the past decade or, or so, and um, recently there was a big victory by National Nurses United in South Carolina. It was you know, the biggest union victory in the South in a very long time. Um, so, you know, they're increasingly unionizing. Nurses are seeing themselves more as workers and not professionals. Um, so I have a feeling this was targeted at that specifically, you know, trying to prevent this sector from from keeping on on growing. Yeah. Uh, and and the NNU, I mean, is is a particularly uh, good union in terms mm-hmm. of you know, campaigning for Medicare for all, you know, is one of the big endorsers of, of both Bernie campaigns. Right. Uh, so, you know, so that, that's particularly disturbing. Uh, and, uh, you also mentioned, uh, the issue that, I mean, I, I think might like not be on a lot of people, people's radar, right. It might initially seem a little esoteric, but it's actually like really important about, uh, defining what bar, you know, uh, defining bargaining units, right. So basically who can be in a union together and, right. and, and, and bargain together rather than having to, uh, go to the employer separately with much less leverage. Right. Yeah. And this is one thing, the NLRB under um, Obama, there's a decision in 2011 called specialty healthcare where, you know, they said, you know, workers and their unions, they have the right to establish uh, what a bargaining unit is. And it makes sense because it also has to do with, you know, the job, like in my union and the teacher's union, um, 
we're in the same union, but technically counselors are in a separate bargaining unit. Nurses um, are in another one because we have our own issues. So, you know, it makes sense that workers should have that right to determine that. Um, but now, you know, one of the first things this new board did was overturn that decision. So it gives employers the sole right to determine a bargaining unit. And obviously they are going to use that to their advantage. And to give one important example, um, in 2018, you have about 180 workers at a Boeing plant in South Carolina who voted to join a union. Um, Boeing, as usual, refused to bargain with them. Um, and when the case went to the court, you know, they added new criteria for what could constitute a bargaining unit. And so they basically ruled that that was not an appropriate bargaining unit. So 180 workers that voted for a union could not have a union because of what the NLRB did. Um, and again, this is really un unprecedented that they're intervening this directly on the side of the employer. That was one example, but it's been extremely consistent. And there's also, you know, a standard practice. If you're going to overturn a president, you would need to at least have some kind of like public input, um, hearings. Um, they've never done any of that for any, any time they overturn something. And again, it's a hundred percent record on the side of employers. Like, um, so again, it, you know, there's no mistaking that this is just an all out assault on labor. Um, you know, and they're, they're, they know how to use their power effectively and they're doing it with this board. Yeah, and and that, the thing about bargaining units, I mean, I think it's really worth kind of underlining and circling a couple of times uh, because I mean, if you just take a beat to think about that, yeah, I mean, if you're an employer uh, and, uh, and you, you have a, a choice between, okay, like, so what's the, you know, what's the subdivision, right. Of the people, of the people mm -hmm. working under me, who uh, who can bargain as a unit, you know, with me, and then potentially, if things go south, can you know go on strike? Uh, well, especially because uh, I, you know, I think a lot of people are don't necessarily track this, right? But I mean, the United States already has like some of the most anti-union labor laws in mm -hmm. the developed world, right? You know, like for example, it's legal to hire permanent replacement, you know, workers uh, during a strike, it's not legal to go out in a sympathy strike. So, which, right. uh, which directly goes to the bargaining unit issue uh, because, well, I mean, take my old situation. I was a, for years, I was an adjunct at Rutgers uh, and I was on the board of the, the adjunct, uh, you know, uh, the adjunct union there. Um, and so while there was, um, you know, the adjunct union and the full-timers union, uh, were um, were both in bargaining, right? If one of them, you know, had had collapsed and gone on strike, it actually would have been illegal for the other one mm -hmm. to go out on strike in support of the other one, right? Right. Yeah. Uh, and so, of course, your incentive as an employer is to try to divide that up, you know, in every possible way that you can. Mm -hmm. And if you're going to say, well, it's it's up to you now, essentially, uh, that that's a incredibly disturbing assault. On, on the right to strike, really, right? You know, because, uh, you know, because of the intersection of that bargaining unit issue uh, with the uh, with the no sympathy strike uh, clause of Taft-Hartley. Uh, but um, I, I guess the one thing I, I did want to make sure that we hit uh, before um, uh, you have to uh, you have to leave so we can uh, start our panel is this uh, is the intersection between labor law and the COVID crisis uh, because some of the um, uh, some of the NLRB rulings, like I think some of the most shocking Trump NLRB mm -hmm. rulings that you mentioned in the article 
uh, take place uh, at that at that intersection, right? So, like, just to get the ball rolling, one of the ones that you mentioned uh, was suspending all union elections and using COVID as a as a pretext to do that. So, like, literally doing at the workplace level what like the coup government of Bolivia has done. Uh, right. Say, oh nope, sorry, no voting COVID. Right. Yeah, and you know, even though these elections could easily be held by by mail, you know, and. I mean, what's even more disturbing, uh, I mean, we all know what essential workers are facing in the workplace. I mean, there's huge amounts of cases of UPS workers and postal workers and grocery store workers. I mean, so the regional directors of the National Labor Relations Board have been told to d- dismiss COVID-related cases against employers. Um, they said you're not obligated to bargain over paid sick leave or hazard pay. Um, you don't have to bargain over temporary closure. So it's literally giving employees a free hand, do whatever you want on this pandemic. Workers can't do anything. And then if you're thinking, well, maybe you could speak out to the public, they even cover that, where they're saying this is not protected speech. So if you speak out against your employer to the public, to the media about a safety issue, it's not protected speech. So um, you really could be fired for raising safety concerns during this deadly pandemic. And, you know, we we don't know how long this pandemic is going to, last or how protracted it's going to be, but I'm, I'm sure you can imagine, and it's already happening, that people are going to be forced to go back to work before it's safe. And, um, you know, this just is another leg they're kicking out from under people for ways they could actually advocate for their safety. So, I mean, it's a pretty stunning ruling. And again, I mean, I'll, I'll get in my cheap shot here with the Democrats. It's just amazing. You would think they would highlight this stuff a lot. Uh, and, you know, I understand in one sense, NRLB is a little bit wonky, but you can frame it in a way to really expose Trump as a fake populist, clearly anti-worker. This is something he has direct control over, who he appoints. Um, you know, you can make that case, and especially to the union households that have voted for Trump, you know, voted for him in 2016. It's just incredible that they're not highlighting this more. Um, yeah, they could even... They could even draw a contrast with Obama. I mean, they could Mm -hmm. say, well, these are things they're overturning that were decent under Obama, and now they're doing this. So I I truly don't get it. And there's even plenty of other stuff they've done to unions. Um, The NLRB does not cover the public sector. It's only private sector. But Trump has launched a whole assault on federal workers. Um, So, yeah, it it just doesn't get any, any play in the media from politicians. Oh, yeah. And uh, and I should add, right, I mean, like, uh, it just came out, I think, about a day ago, uh, within the last couple of days, uh, Amazon uh, just uh, revealed that uh, some 20,000 Amazon mm-hmm. employees uh, have uh, have been diagnosed with COVID. Uh, and, and so you, you start thinking about that, and, and you think about uh, everything we know about the kind of, like, dystopian, like, high-tech Dickensian, you know, workhouse right. that like uh, those, those Amazon uh, warehouses uh, work, uh, then, uh, then, yeah, I mean, that the fact that, uh, that that's not considered a protected speech that, you know, that you can't be, uh, can't be protected uh, against, uh, against being fired for, uh, for speaking out about that. Uh, one, right. Uh, it's, you know, I mean, where my, my mind automatically goes is it's like a pretty obvious way to, to show up, the massive hypocrisy of um, of Republicans who have have made a big deal about caring about free speech when mm-hmm. it comes to you know cancel culture et cetera right you know that 
Uh, but and then two, as as you point out, right? I mean, I think yeah, like some of the details are a little wonky, but I mean, there is clearly a way to uh, to frame this uh, that's that's visceral, right? You know right. that that's, mm-hmm. that's uh, that you know that the the Trump administration you know uh, doesn't want people to be allowed to. Uh, to to speak out, you know, uh, you know, against about conditions in their workplaces. The Trump administration, uh, you know, once uh, is is using this as an excuse to stop workers, you know, from from forming unions. Uh, and I think especially in places like you know Michigan and Wisconsin, you know, mm-hmm. Pennsylvania, uh, that uh, where these 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 crucial states that uh, Hillary Clinton won last time, uh, to a great extent, you know, because of um, of disillusionment by voters in traditional democratic constituencies. Right. Uh, it seems like this would make a difference. Uh, and the way that they've just been relentlessly chasing this very small margin mm-hmm. of, uh, of never Trump Republicans uh, at the, at the same, you know, at the same time as, as not making a big deal about this uh, just, just seems like political malpractice. Uh, right. So. Everybody should read. Uh, everybody should read Paul's article, um, and I think, I mean, this this is this is exactly why, right? Like, I don't buy into the sort of progressives for Biden line that you know Biden, you know, can be pressured to support you know anything basically, right? You right. know, like uh, I, I think I think we could be absolutely honest about who and what he is, but at the same time, you can acknowledge. That you have that the Trump and Biden are both enemies, and you can still make a tactical decision about which enemy you want to be fighting with about which issue uh, for for the next four years. And I think yeah. we should be able to walk and chew bubble gum on that question. Uh, and this this NLRB issue, I mean, for anybody certainly on the socialist left, anybody who cares about class politics, that should be absolutely at the heart of how we think mm-hmm. about this. So. Could I add one just just quick point that I think is important? Um, I mean, another issue, this thing of independent contracting. And personally, I I think this is the biggest task the labor movement has to figure out. Um, So when you're classified as independent contractor, you're not covered Mm -hmm. by the Wagner Act. Um, And so basically, you don't have the right to organize. And traditional, you know, labor law does not apply to you. And Department of Labor has has estimated over 30% of workers are misclassified as independent contractors. So getting over that hurdle is huge for labor, for organizing in the private sector. And this board has also ruled that, you know, if you misclassify, even if it's intentional to avoid unions, that nothing wrong with that, you know, no consequences, that's all fine. So uh, that, that's huge, um, just on the labor law point. Like, we, we really need to figure out how to deal with this independent contracting problem in this country. So that's, that's central. Yeah, and that and obviously that was a huge obstacle to organizing uh, even before Trump. But right. uh, but this this ruling that you're talking about um, really creates this massive legal obstacle because if you if even being able to prove that their intention in misclassified you yeah. uh, was to stop you from from joining a union isn't good enough to challenge it, that that really is just flat out saying is like, yep, no, they're they're just allowed to do this now. Right. So um, so yeah. Thank you so much, Paul. Uh, yeah, thanks really for having me. Yeah, really appreciate you taking the time. So uh, is um, uh, Paul Prescott. Uh, so the uh, the article uh, is uh, is called uh, Trump Claims He's Pro-Worker, uh, but his labor board is trying to destroy worker organizing. 
that uh, came out a little about a week and a half ago in Jacobin. Check that out. Anything else you want to plug before you go? Um, not really plug. It's just, you know, it doesn't take that long to vote. And I, I, I've been telling people I'm a single issue voter in LRB this election. Yeah. So it doesn't have to be a big, big debate about that. Absolutely. A hundred percent agree. That's, that's also the way, the, the way that I always, I always frame that, that, mm-hmm. uh, you know, if you, um, I mean, there are a lot of, I think very dubious arguments flying around about the idea that, um, that like small numbers of, of leftists can, can exercise some sort of leverage, you know, by, uh, uh, by, by withholding our votes. I think the historical track record is very bad there. Um, you know, I, I think that, you know, if, if I, if I lived in New York, uh, I, I would do the, uh, the political, uh, the political equivalent of, you know, smearing some shit on the prison wall, you know, by, uh, by voting third party, uh, right. as, as, as a protest to, about just how bad, uh, Biden is. But, uh, but since, uh, since I do not, right. You know, I, I, I will, and I, I would urge others in, in swing states to, uh, uh, close your eyes and think of the NLRB, but, uh, but thank you so much, Paul. Um, really appreciate that. So I'm uh, now uh, joined by Sean Goody, who is a editor at, uh, at Jacobin uh, and who is uh, working on a book about uh, Eugene V. Debs. Um, Friend of uh, of the show, uh, Daniel uh, Daniel Bessner, and uh, and returning champ uh, Harvey J K, uh, to uh, to talk about about Debs uh, and and what the uh, the socialist left can can learn from its early history, which which I think at a time uh, when when we've experienced some uh, some very real defeats uh, and disorientation, I think if I think if there's ever a time to kind of, to kind of go back to that and, and, and think about that and, and, you know, what, um, what this, this kind of early flowering of, uh, of socialist politics, uh, in America looked like and, and what, if anything, we can learn from that about, uh, about building up an effective socialist left now, this would be it. Um, thank you guys so much for, uh, for coming. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks, Ben. Yeah. So, um, a couple of weeks ago, I had uh, Thomas uh, Frank on, and uh, and we were, we were talking about uh, previous third party effort uh, to the Socialist Party, the uh, the People's Party, where the word populism comes from, uh, and and that's um, and and that is maybe like a good kind of entry point, you know, to to the story here. Um, you know, because because you know Debs, I understand, right? Originally, you know, uh, comes uh, comes out uh, comes out of that, right? He doesn't you know doesn't emerge from the womb as a as a Marxist, uh, and um, and then uh, and then I think uh, an, another place um, that that we that we could that we could start it would be uh, would be talking about the uh, the Pullman strike and um, and Debs's uh, role in that. I'm sure that we're going to well, we're going to get to both of those things. Uh, and um, and you know, Daniel uh, Daniel Bessner fills us out here with uh, you know with with giving us some some background about uh, the uh, the European socialist movement that you know was influencing the Americans. But I guess let's uh, let's start with with Sean, right? So so what what made you interested in in 
in looking back at this history and writing about this now? Uh, yeah, I mean, I had been interested in Debs for a long time. And um, I guess in thinking about my own uh, sort of journey to socialist politics, Debs played a, a pretty big role in that. Um, I remember reading Nick Salvatore's really excellent biography uh, a while ago now. And uh, reading him and others uh, was pretty formative for me. So I've been interested in Debs for a while. Um, I think it's for probably for two reasons. One is just like that it was a really successful um, by American centers was a very successful movement, um, successful socialist, socialist movement. It was a, a genuine mass movement of, uh, of hundreds of thousands of people. And, and there was, you know, the socialists elected mayors and, um, state legislators and local officials and, you know, govern major cities. Uh, and so by comparison, we're, I mean, and this was, uh, I think I was reading that in maybe 2012 or 2013. And so, um, I mean, obviously we made great strides since then. Um, but even, even today, uh, what, what they accomplished, we're, we're pretty far off from that still um, in terms of the number of people that we've elected or, or the kind of uh, strength of, of socialist politics and labor movement. Um, I mean, you can use a, a variety of metrics, but they were quite successful and Debs was absolutely central to that. He was the, um, the most popular uh, um, spokesperson in the party. He ran for president five times on the socialist, under the socialist banner. Um, so that's one thing. I think the other thing, the, the first thing is just like that they were so successful and he was so central to it. The second thing is that democracy was so important to him in his socialist politics. And that, uh, that for me is, um, you know, that's, that's why I'm a socialist basically. Um, so, yeah. So I was in trying to think through some of these questions about the relationship between socialism and democracy and having this ethical commitment, but also having this sort of practical, um, strategic and tactical vision to, to actually, okay, how do we, how do we actually create a more democratic world? And Debs knew that class struggle was really central to that. And I think the last hundred years have certainly, um, have certainly proved him right. in um, the rise of the labor movement in the U S and to the extent that we have um, democratic rights, it's been through struggle. Um, it's, uh, in the, in the labor movement in the thirties and then also the civil rights movement and pretty much every advancement you can think of in terms of democratic rights has been through struggle and um, class struggle has been central to that. So Debs is uh, just a really, he's a, um, he's a, a, a great totem of democracy really in the, in the country. And so that's, um, so that's, you know, why I've been interested in him for a while. Nice. Yeah. Um, and uh, and Harvey, uh, I know uh, that you have uh, have also uh, written about him. In fact, I believe in the book that we can see behind your shoulder, uh, the uh, take uh, take hold of uh, take hold of our history. Uh, I, I might be getting my Harvey J.K. books, uh, you know, uh, mixed up, but you know, but I believe that there's uh, there's there's some Deb stuff in there. Uh, do you want to do you want to start us out with a little bit of your interest in him? Yeah. What's- well, one of the things that, that I find so interesting about Debs is how I always keep running into him and I keep coming back to him. And even, even in this past week, um, I'll mention, 
And I'll, I will tell you that um, Tom Frank, who's an, who's an old friend, and I think his newest book is is among the best three he's done. Um, he uh, titled it, as we know, The People Know, which is, of course, drawn from an epic-length poem by Carl Sandburg, who was probably the foremost, one of the two foremost uh, Democ- small-D Democratic poets of the century. And, this, and that was written in 1936, during the New Deal years, when when labor really was was renewed on a scale that, that was unprecedented. But what's also interesting about that, because I'm backing into all of this, is that living here in Northeast Wisconsin, I'm not in Milwaukee, which was from basically for decades a socialist-governed city. Um, but, it, but Carl Sandburg was a socialist organizer up here in the northeast corner of Wisconsin along the lakeshore, Manitowoc and Two Rivers, over to Appleton, which, by the way, is where Joe McCarthy is buried, and, uh, and up here to Green Bay. And he was a socialist organizer back in the 19-teens and then became the secretary to, I believe it was the socialist mayor of Milwaukee in the later teens before he went to Chicago. Now, the reason I say this is that by... By way of Tom Frank's book, I went back into the Deb story because I was interested in particular about the link between the populists and the socialists. And we think of the populists and we think of the agrarian Midwest and the Southwest and, and the South, in fact. Mm-hmm. And, we, and, and Tom's book does a great job of sort of demolishing some of the myths about the supposedly inherent racism to the, to the populism of the time and all of that. Well, anyhow, what, what I want to get to is this. I came to, to, uh, to Debs myself originally by way of Thomas Paine, in mm. fact. I mean, I knew of Debs. I was a socialist. It was a tradition of, of American socialism that was utter, you know, underappreciated, um, which I came to appreciate all the more, not only because I was from New York and my grandfather as a, as a college student and law student and had, had been a socialist. Um, but all the more because when I came out here and I came to Wisconsin, I was reminded of the fact that this was the state of really sort of sewer socialism or municipal socialism, which was headed up in this state by Victor Berger. Um, well, I've got so many stories running around in my head. But the thing was, with, I, I, when I read my book on Thomas Paine, which is now, I was 19, I came out in, no, 2005, I guess. So that's 15 years. One of the things that, was, that really struck me was the degree to which not only Thomas Paine's memory had been suppressed, mm-hmm. but also the story of American radicalism, which at a certain point, by way of Debs and others, becomes the story of American socialism. And now I'm going to bring this together. So what, and what you find is that the populace had really embraced Thomas Paine. At Jefferson, too, but Paine, Paine they would quote in political campaigns, um, not just the Declaration of Independence. And then you get... Then you get you get this, this, if you like, not just decline, but essentially collapse after 1896, effectively. And the socialists, it's like timing is, is, is fascinating. And the socialists become this really growing and increasingly significant force in American politics, and especially in the lives of working people in just about every corner of the country. And it's, and it's Debs who articulates this, and he does this, and this is to... Uh, 
with a nod to what Sean was saying, a truly, for its day, diverse socialist politics. Truly diverse for its day. And um, they used to, and, they, and these socialists used to gather in the same fashion that the populace had gathered, which sort of enhanced the, the whole thing. And one of the things that I discovered is that, that Debs loved to quote Thomas Paine, and his three great heroes were Patrick Henry, Thomas Paine, and Jesus. Okay. So there were all these things that I kept coming and running into, and um, so I, that's not coherent, but that's sort of the way I think about Debs as well. Yeah, so, so, uh, so Harvard's talking about the way that Debs is, uh, is embedded in this kind of trajectory of uh, American radicalism. Um, just, I, I have to say, because I just read uh, Christopher Hitchens' book about, uh, about, about Thomas Paine, and so I'm just thinking about the part in there about the, the age of reason and Paine's views on religion. So saying that, you know, saying that Paine, uh, that Paine and Jesus, you know, are two, are two of your heroes is a little bit funny, but, uh, uh, but yeah, I want um, so so thinking about that tradition. I, I think actually is is a useful way in here uh, because because it gets us to uh, to what um, well uh, you know what you referred to Sean a minute ago and uh, and what's the actually the uh, the title of uh, of the Jacobin uh, article that you put out last month about Debs. Uh, you know, a little the sort of first preview we've gotten maybe of uh, what's going to be in the book, uh, which is uh, headlined, Eugene Debs Believed in Socialism uh, Because He Believed in Democracy. Uh, so uh, you want to talk a little bit about, about what you say in that article? Uh, yeah, it's, it's sort of a long piece. Um, so there's a lot that I try to cover. I mean, I tried to give – what I was trying to do was um, write a, basically a biographical essay on Debs um, that also – uh, offered some some sort of takeaways, I guess, or lessons um, for trying to think about a Debsian politics for the 21st century. And then I also tried to um, I also tried to just make it clear that I mean you can you can think about Debs in a lot of ways, um, but I tried to make it clear again how central democracy was to his politics and. So yeah, I, I, I guess I'll I can I can try to briefly talk about um, yeah, talk about it. Um, so Debs was born in 1855, um, and he sort of matures uh, along with again. Uh, I'll, I'll shout out Nick Salvatore's book again because it does a really excellent job of showing this. But he sort of grows up with industrial capitalism in the U.S. Mm-hmm. and his politics are, are, are really shaped indelibly by that. And so he, you know, he has these, from a young age, he has a kind of strong democratic, small D democratic commitments. And he, um, he, he goes to work on the railroad when he's 14. Um, and he gets involved in trade union politics. He's rather moderate when he's younger. Uh, he's a pretty moderate trade union leader. And really the thing that pushes him to the left, um, not, not immediately to socialism, but to a more radical politics, more radical trade unionism, you could say, is uh, just seen up close the despotism of industrial capitalism, the way that it presses uh, workers into really severe relations of domination at the workplace. And then also the way that um, when they try to fight back 
uh, through labor action, um, the state is sort of called in to, to help repress um, their rights, really, at the workplace and just their right to have, um, you know, control over their over their lives. Um, so he sees this, you shout this out, Ben, he sees this, um, I mean, in a number of places, but he really sees it in the 1894 Pullman strike. And he helps lead that. This is a strike of, uh, of the workers that build the Pullman uh, luxury cars um, outside of Chicago, a company town um, called Pullman, named for George Pullman, the, the, the leader of the, um, um, of the company. And this, this uh, produces this massive, um, this massive strike. Uh, Debs is Debs, the leader of it. He ends up being jailed uh, for his participation along with other leaders of the ARU, the American Railway Union, uh, which is uh, a really important union in labor history. And um, it's one of the first industrial unions. Uh, so it's, it's organizing workers, not by craft, um, but actually is organizing everyone um, in a given, in a given industry. So it's seeking to actually bring, uh, workers together to sort of exert their power collectively rather than um, just like thinking of themselves as a, a break man or like a, <laughs> or a, 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 the other jobs you could work on the, the railroad and, and sort of um, bringing people together to, to, to do that. So, um, so the Pullman strike was central. Um, and then he basically moves to socialism around that time. It's sort of unclear exactly what happens. There's like a lot of mythology around when he actually became a socialist, but we do know that he publicly declared himself a socialist um, on January 1st, 1897 um, in a letter to the ARU membership. Yeah. Um, this, this might be part of the mythology, right? I, I remember hearing the, uh, he read uh, capital, uh, in, in prison, which, you know, for anybody who's actually read it, right. You know, I, I think under the, under the best of circumstances, getting through the first three chapters, uh, is, uh, is, is a challenge, right. So I don't know, maybe, maybe that would have been, uh, maybe it would have had fewer distractions, you know, if, if you're reading it in prison and it's easier to get through it. Um, but, uh, but yeah, so, so he, so he declares himself uh, a socialist uh, in 1897. Uh, and, and actually this, this might be a, a good time to, to kind of take a step back to, uh, to what that, um, you know, what that means for him, what the sort of global, you know, socialist movement that, that he's identifying with uh, looks like uh, and, and how that ties into this like deeply radically democratic vision. Uh, so, uh, so Daniel, I was, I was wondering if uh, if you could if you could tell us a little bit about the the background of like what uh, the international socialist movement uh, looks like, you know, by this point uh, at the end of the nineteenth century. Sure, and just before I, I do that, I, I just want to say that uh, it's good to see everyone. Uh, you know, uh, Sean, I think this is the first time we've seen each other. And Harvey, it's good to see you. And Ben, it's it's good to see you as well. And um, I've actually also come across Debs in my own work, with which focuses a bit more on a later period, just because, of course, Woodrow Wilson's arrest of Debs is, I think, one of the most crucial um, events of the 20th century in the terms of the history of the American left is that it really cuts off 
uh, socialism or strangle socialism in the, in the crib. And I, I, you guys who are more specialists on Debs could correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe in the 1912 election, he won something like 12% of the vote, uh, which is a pretty substantial amount for, you know, a non uh, major party candidate. And I think that um, this is, this is a warning uh, just when we're thinking strategically. And Ben, I know you and I are obsessed with that. Just thinking strategically about like the ability of state power to really, you know, strangle these things. So I just wanted to highlight that. And so in, in the late 19th century, I think it's important to emphasize that there's, you know, a, a different socialisms, mm. right? There, there's a Lasellian socialism, uh, which LaSalle was sort of a, a, an opponent of Marx at the time. There's sort of a Fabian socialism in the UK. Uh, there's a, a French socialism and there's a Marxist socialism. So socialism is not um, co- coterminous with Marxism as it, as it often is um, it often is today. So I think that's important to emphasize. But um, you basically get the rise uh, in the late 19th century of a transition from sort of um, labor unions and the organizing that's taken place with the rise of mass industrialization into coherent political parties. And you get various responses to these political parties. So, for example, Bismarck passed so-called anti-socialist laws, which essentially prevents the socialists from being a political party in a, in a variety of ways and tries to strangle socialism, but doesn't quite work. Um, and different countries have their own different histories with that. But you also really get the beginning of this sort of transnational recognition of an international working class movement. Um, and I think this is really important to emphasize because um, in my understanding of the history of socialism, and admittedly this is from a more European, continental European perspective, which is what I focus on in this in this period of my research, is that um, there's this great hope in international and transnational socialism being the, the, the key to overcoming basically, on one hand, bourgeois capitalism, and on the other hand, sort of the declining, decrepit European aristocracy. Because you have to remember, um, at this time, there's actually still a rather vibrant isn't the right word, but there's a European aristocracy that, that still holds cultural power and also landed power. So socialism begins to have two enemies, the bourgeois, which we're all familiar with, the bourgeoisie, which we're all familiar with, and sort of the, the declining European aristocracy. Um, and so I think this becomes a focal point of socialism in this in this period, and it's really this period of sort of the international and this development of, uh, of an international socialism that I think um, separates it when we're thinking historically about the pre and post World War One periods. And I think what World War One does on an international scale is that it really ends um, in the North Atlantic core of industrialization, not in the Soviet Union, which comes in 1917 and after, but in the North Atlantic core, um, it ends this sort of dream of international uh, socialism. So that's on one hand. And then on the other hand, you have the big debate in Germany. And I think this is the debate that really um, continues to shape socialist thinking between what might be called reform and revolution. Um, So... I'm sorry, Ben. Please. Oh yeah, no. I, I was gonna say right. So, uh, so, so maybe before before we even like really really get too too deep into that, right? That uh, you know, want to think, uh, you know, like I'm, I'm glad that you're talking about this this kind of um, you know dream of uh, of international solidarity. You know, the uh, the the, uh, the socialist international, uh, which um, still exists in a really 
degenerated and, and not very useful form uh, like uh, the um, the military ruling party in Egypt, you know, is is uh, is in it now. But uh, but um, but back then, right? Like that really meant something, right? So so when when Debs. Uh, is is aligning with socialism, even though as you as you point out, Daniel, right? There are all kinds of flavors and factions, and you know this this is not a unitary thing. Uh, he he's identifying with with this global movement uh, that uh, that really emphasizes uh, international solidarity of the working class as the way to overcome uh, both what you're talking about, the sort of like decrepit remains of, of feudal aristocracy uh, in in Europe. Uh, and and also the, the emerging form of, of capitalism as, as we know it and don't particularly love it now. Uh, and um, and earlier, you know, Sean was was talking about you know seeing this this kind of uh, the, the sort of extreme forms of domination, right, of of workers uh, by by capitalists, uh, and so. Any form of anybody who's a socialist, right, in, in 1897, because it's, it's almost hard sometimes to think your way back to this, because now, uh, you know, obviously, um, you know, it's, it's been over for about 30 years, but we had several decades of the Cold War before that, and, uh, and what socialism meant to, be, to many people uh, was, was pretty severely distorted by, by the authoritarianism uh, of the Soviet system. Uh, but uh, but for for anybody in 1897, right, socialism was a radically democratic idea, right? You know, of, of a society uh, where where you move not just from um, you know feudal aristocracy to uh, to the the power of uh, of robber barons who are at least their workers were technically free, you know, legally free agents, you know, contracting with them, uh, but you move to something something much better than this, right? So. Uh, and uh, and any of you guys want to jump in and, and, and talk about this, go for it, right? But they have, but but when so when Debs particularly, right? Like I think a phrase that's often very associated with him is he talks about like a, a cooperative commonwealth as his vision of socialism, right? So so if if you're declaring yourself a socialist in 1897, what do you mean when you by socialism? Well, I, I'm gonna I want to just say the cooperative commonwealth idea actually seems to be rooted in the populist tradition. And that in some ways, that's part of that inheritance. Um, but the other thing I was going to say, I, I want to tie together a few things. I'm happy to go back to, to where we were going, is that um, Debs himself accords, uh, he gives Victor Berger credit for turning him into a socialist, because Berger actually went down to visit him in jail. And apparently, it was, it was Berger, I think, who gave him capital to read. And then, and similarly, I would add that, and, and, and I bet Sean knows more about this than I do, is that, um, is that Debs had been reading Kautsky as well, I'm pretty sure. Um, so so th- those are the kind of things that come. Now, here's the irony of all this. So Berger turns Debs into a socialist and a Marxist. But Berger himself and Debs come to represent in the American world the two sort of versions of socialism that had been emerging in Europe. And this is something we will, I know we'll get to later, but I just want to point out that it's the Berger tradition of socialism that actually has a much greater impact on the story of American socialism later. And, I, and by the way, I don't say that with great affection for Berger. My, my affections are with, are with Debs in, in that moment. But the, 
socialist mayors in Milwaukee, they come all the way into the 60s. And that's the burger tradition. So in other words, the socialist politics in Milwaukee does not get crushed by the Cold War because it was building of socialism within capitalism, which I think we need to, we'll need to talk about later. But it's, well, that's, well, that's, that's actually, that's actually a, good, a, a, good, a good introduction point, right? Because uh, mm-hmm. the way that this distinction is sometimes made, right, is that you can talk about uh, socialist policies, you know, uh, maybe depending on how you like to split up the categories and use the words, right, you know, socialist programs. Uh, but then you're talking about... Um, socialism sometimes people would say like socialism within capitalism right but then as opposed to socialism after capitalism right so so yeah. when, when somebody like debs is talking uh about uh the cooperative commonwealth right you know which which might be a phrase that means slightly different things in slightly different iterations right he, he's very clearly talking uh about a, a socialism that comes after capitalism a, a uh, that uh having a different kind of society uh, where, where you've uh, you've undone uh, that domination of, of one class of, of the population by another. So I, I wonder if maybe before we get into uh, Tukowski and 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 some of the uh, some of the reform versus revolution splits and all that, which is actually absolutely vital, we do need to get into that, right? Uh, Sean, I was, I was I was wondering if if you wanted to to speak a little bit to to what socialism just means to figures like Debs. Yeah, um, I mean, to Debs, I think I guess it could be useful actually to to um, to go back to what Harvey was saying. It is useful to to sort of contrast by way of definition, just contrast what Debs thought um, compared to what Berger thought, because they did have uh, rather different views. Um, I mean, both of them were socialists in some sense for sure, um, but Debs just put more emphasis on the need for. Her class struggle to bring um, socialism about. And um, I think, I don't know, Berger, Berger is very analogous to the, the kind of mid-century social democrats in Europe who thought that you could have this compromise essentially between labor and capital and you could just, um, you could provide, you know, high quality public goods and expand the welfare state and, um, deliver, you know, quality management, effective quality management of the economy. And um, as long as you do that, uh, workers are going to end off better, end up better off. And you don't really have to have, um, I mean, he, it's pretty amazing. Like he bragged that like the social Democrats in, um, or the socialists, I mean, they called themselves social Democrats at the time, just like basically everyone, every, uh, every socialist did. Um, so the distinction at the time wasn't um, wasn't really a nomenclature, but he he bragged that the social democrats in Milwaukee had effectively prevented strikes, like that 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 there was no class struggle anymore because like workers were representing government, and so he was even he was even saying like, "Don't worry, capitalists, <laughs> we're gonna we're gonna make sure that like there aren't any strikes because like the workers are going to be sort of integrated into the." into the system. And I think, I think personally, I mean, Debs was right in my view that that was naive. And, um, and I think uh, for all the successes of the social Democrats in post-war Europe, he was, he was right. Uh, sort of Debsian politics proved correct that you can't actually have this 
compromise. And obviously you need to push for reforms, really radical reforms. But you, you can't lose sight of the fact that like, if you want to increase the power of workers in society and democratize society, like class struggle is essential and you can't, you can't just forget that. So, yeah. Yeah. So, so, so that's, that's, that's I, just, I, point, I, I swear to you, I'm not going to promote uh, <laughs> burgers politics, but I yeah. do think it's important to realize that one of the things that, that the super socialists were about is they were talking about public ownership of enterprises, especially mm-hmm. enterprises that would truly enhance working class life. Yeah. And, yeah. and, and, and don't forget, working class life was pretty miserable if the streets weren't paved and the sewers didn't exist and the lighting didn't go, go on. Yeah. So, I mean, but I think our danger would be to pit the two of them against each other is that that's still the question today. And there aren't other ways of, of cultivating socialism because one could argue that at least Berger understood that, that social democracy was a, fu- a, a, a really effective way of defending workers' interests and actually educating them to the possibility of a far more in favor of what Sean's been calling for, a more, far more small-D democratic society. On the other hand... Sorry, I promise this is it. Okay. It is the case with, with Debs is that he really did offer a unifying vision yeah. to all of those workers in that day, the Jewish socialists of New York and the German-Americans out here, although Berger actually was interested because he was Jewish, but he had this appeal to these German-Americans here. And then you can, go, you, know, you can go across the country and see the degree to which Debs was offering a vision that enhanced the struggles that folks like the sewer socialists in the Midwest cities and say later, if you like liberals and social Democrats in New York and elsewhere could really build upon. I, that's just for the historical record. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's good. So, so I want to, uh, phrase we've been throwing around a lot here is, is social democracy, which is probably worth clarifying because as, as Sean was kind of mentioning, uh, in this historical period, doesn't mean the same thing that it means now. Right. So the, uh, all all socialists, right? You know, socialism and social democracy. Yeah, even the anarchists, by the way, of the Haymarket era. Yeah, 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 right. I, I mean, and, and whatever. Lenin called himself a social democrat, right, until uh, World War One, uh, and social democracy in that original sense, right, that was used as a synonym for socialism, is meant very literally, right? Like this is what Sean was talking about. We want to extend democracy into the social realm. Uh, yeah, you, you wanted to pick up on that, Daniel? And this is the big issue, right? Because what happens over the course of, of 1890 to 1940 is that there's several crises of Marxism, right? So Marx is basically like once the working class is empowered, there's kind of a functional relationship to actually existing socialism. But by the late 19th century, this this isn't it doesn't happen, right? Just it, historically, empirically, doesn't happen, right? So this presents the first of, I think, a very important crisis for Marxism uh, writ large internationally, and this leads to the first sort of um, major um, revolution in what would come to later be called Western Marxist thought, as diverse from sort of Soviet communism. But this divide doesn't actually exist yet, just like there's no divide between social democracy and communism until basically the splitting of the German socialists in World War I. So um, there's a big debate in German Marxism in roughly the late 19th and early 20th century about the, the question of reform versus revolution. Mm-hmm. And you have people like Karl Kotsky and especially Eduard Bernstein, who is 
internationally influential, essentially saying that the, the key to socialist transformation is through expansion of the vote and expansion through participation in the emergent democratic processes of these of these European states and the and the United States. Um, so, of course, you have to remember. Uh, let's just take the United States. Women don't have the vote until the twenties, right? So there's like massive um, numbers of people who aren't enfranchised. Um, throughout Europe and throughout the United States. So then um, what what becomes sort of the leadership of the German uh, socialist movement, um, and I think it's important to emphasize that this uh, socialism is not necessarily just a party, but a movement. Uh, and what I mean by that is that the party is just one part of a larger movement, which includes cultural organizations, which includes things like bowling leads, which includes things like Boy Scouts, which includes things like dance halls and bars, right? You'd go to the socialist bar, you wouldn't go to the, you know, nationalist bar, the imperialist bar, whatever it may be. So the idea, though, is that the, the goal of socialism is supposed to be, uh, at least through the, the people who run the movement uh, in the North Atlantic core, is sort of participation in the democratic process. Uh, and then, there are, of course, there are people who very much disagree with this. Um, you know, uh, t- many, many famous socialist thinkers, Luxembourg, Lenin, of course, disagree with this, what they view as sort of this ameliorist, uh, ameliorative program. But this is, I think, what becomes the center of, of what might be called organized socialism. So I just wanted to emphasize that point. Yeah, and, and I, I do want to point out, by the way, just to uh, defend the honor of my boy Karl Kautsky that uh, the that um, that that so so this this split we're talking about here, uh, which which mirrors itself uh, in in the American context, right? You know, but is is most explicitly happening probably uh, in in German social democracy. Which is the heart of the socialist movement. I think it's important to emphasize that until the Soviet Union, international socialists look to Germany. That is that is the the sort of gate the sort of framework through which people like Debs all over the world, Lenin, they're looking to Germany because Marx says it's the heart of the industrial revolution in continental Europe, and also Marx was German. So yeah. I think that's also important to emphasize. Yeah, yeah, yeah right, I absolutely. Say, I will, say, I will oh, sorry, say, Harvey, go for it. I don't think Debs quite bows to German German social democracy. I mean, the thing about Debs is he remains very, very firmly a part of, in his mind, this kind of, a, he's a socialist, but he really is a part of this American socialist tradition that's emerging. And I, I, I'm, not, I'm not disagreeing. I would just dissent on the degree to which Debs does that. Okay. Well, it's, it's I, I, take, I take your point, just very quickly, Ben, I take, Parvi, I take your point. Debs, you're the specialist. But I, I would say, like, as Daniel Rogers shows in Atlantic Crossings, Germany is this space where Americans and other people really look to. The degree to, to Debs, I totally defer, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. well, I mean, I, I think, I mean, my, my sense is that both are true, right? I mean, like, that yeah, there's, yeah. This, this stuff has, has roots in, in a distinctively American radical tradition, but is also deeply engaged with with what's going on uh, in in these debates uh, these debates in Germany and, and is very influenced by by people like Kautsky. What I was going to say there is in terms of this this division between like Harvey mentioned a couple times the uh, the sewer socialists uh, in in Milwaukee, uh, you know, which in a lot of ways anticipate what we now call social democracy, uh, which which would be like. I used the phrase earlier, socialism within capitalism, you know, that like as opposed to socialism as a system coming after capitalism. And that's complicated, right? As Harvey mentions, right? You know, these these guys are also, we're all about public ownership. But, um, 
But in that debate playing out in Germany between Bernstein, who is really advocating uh, this this view that uh, that the uh, that that the sort of gradual process of reforms is is actually more important than this kind of end state goal of uh, of of abolishing the division of society between workers and capitalists and extending democracy to, to the workplace. Uh, and, and that at, or at the very least that can be achieved through this very gradual process, um, you know, in a way that really de-emphasizes traditional uh, Marxist ideas about class struggle. Uh, in that debate, uh, Kautsky is, uh, is on the side of, of fairly orthodox Marxism that, uh, that he's that uh, if you read his book, the road to power, uh, he is um, he's he's defending you know Marx and Engels ideas about class struggle and 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 the importance of a, of, of of a rupture with capitalism. Uh, he doesn't have the same position as somebody like Rosa Luxemburg. You know there is a real difference there, right? But but it's it's a um, it's a three way debate rather than a two way two way debate, uh, which which yeah, and Ben. Yeah, no, Ben, is, you're exactly right. I think what's important to emphasize here is a lot of this has to do with fairly parochial debates about what type of party you're going to have. Is it going to be a class, a Klassen party or a folks party, right? And so, like, this is this is the question, right? Are you going to try to have cross-class alliance within a socialist party, or are you not going to have cross-class alliance? And Bernstein is very much on the side of a, a cross-class alliance in a way that Kautsky is not. I think yeah. that's a, an, another important thing to, to underline. Yeah, and his, his uh, and and so Kautsky uh, is emphasizing, you know, parliamentarism, but in uh, exactly, you know, in a way that's still very tied to uh, to class politics and, and the necessity of this kind of rupture uh, from from capitalism, which which in a lot of ways, right? I mean, just to put my own cards on the table, I, I, I think is kind of the. Um, uh, the the exactly right bowl of porridge there, you know, that uh, is uh, as far. Yeah, I just want to throw one Harvey, go for it. The the American context. This is not American exceptionalism. Okay. Yeah. Okay. But but there is something actually rather exceptional in these circumstances in a very material way, and that is that those very look in Ger- the German peasant class. Okay, which was more of a farming class in the West and more of a truly peasant class in the East. Those kind of folks are, are from the course of the 1850s and 60s, they're, they're driven out in great numbers. And where do they come? They're here. Okay. This, I'm in the German American state settled by all those people who wanted the land. And here's, here's Debs. Now Berger's got an, he's urban, but Debs is very much attached to populism, very much attached to the Southwestern socialists who combine sort of an agrarian and a industrial kind of socialism. And, and then to throw into the mix, because I'm in the state which gave birth in some ways to the capital P progressivism, you've got progressive politicians who are actually the ones really pushing a kind of middle class, sorry, for lack of a better term, a kind of middle class democratic politics. And one of the things that the sewer socialists figured out is they could actually cooperate with the progressives. Okay, so it sort of complicates the entire socialist experience. I'm speaking from the Midwest, okay, and so, but actually, out there in the Northwest, the progressives and the socialists had to cut their own deals. I expect so. 
Yeah, yeah, so, yeah. Just very briefly, and of course, there's as Harvey knows better than I. There's different. There's right wing progressives. There's left wing progressives. The progressives have different relationships to different immigrant classes. So it's such. I just want to emphasize, like he said, it's just a very locally contextualized things yeah. thing what in a lot of ways. Is, I don't know of a counter. But can you help me out? I don't think there's a counterpart to that on the continent. Pop, the, the progressives. No, they're they're liberals. They're sort of liberal technocrats would be the closest thing you get because the progressives are so shaped by immigration, I think, in the response to immigration in a way that just doesn't happen in Europe. Right. Yeah. So, so, so Sean, uh, you know, when we think about these, these kinds of debates um, that, you know, going on uh, about um, reform and revolution and then, and then a little bit later in the story uh, about uh, the, attitude that the socialists should take uh towards towards the war world war one right you know late, later on which um at least in the american context you didn't get uh what you got uh in in europe which which was lots of socialists um completely abandoning what they'd always said before which is that if the capitalists try to start a war we'll have like general strikes to stop them from doing it uh and actually like going along with their respective countries' war efforts, right? So you don't really get that in America. Uh, but uh, the, the Socialist Party, uh, the Socialist Party of America and, and uh, the Bolsheviks in Russia, right, are, are two of the only uh, socialist parties that actually stuck to their guns, right, in that situation. But uh, you do certainly get debates about how to how to approach it, right, you know, and, and certainly uh, distinctions about how militant the, the opposition to it should be that kind of continue these these debates about you know sort of sewer socialism versus revolutionary socialism uh and uh something i've i've heard um i've heard you say before uh about debs is that sometimes people um you know people sort of mistake his relationship uh with with some of these ideas and and what i've heard you say is that the thing that's that's distinctive uh you know, about Debs is his ability to sort of translate um, radical Marxist ideas in ways that, that make sense to Americans, but we shouldn't mistake that for not being an adherent of those ideas. Yeah, I would say that. And oh, sorry, sorry Sean. You, you wanted, Sean right? yeah. Okay. yeah, no, I, I, um, I think that's right. And also I would, I would, um, I would also say somewhat relatedly that it's definitely important to remember, or it's definitely important to, to, to note Debs is Debs very much comes out of the American tradition, but he is a true internationalist. And um, so I think there's a, there can be a danger in, uh, in either way, I guess. I think, um, I don't know. I, I think uh, there might've been a tendency in the past among some historians to, to make, make it clear that Debs wasn't like a, a kind of foreign, he wasn't like importing these foreign ideas into the American, um, into the American experience. Um, and that's true. Uh, but it's also, you know, if you read say like the Canton speech that the one that, that um, in which he was jailed, number one is internationalism really, internationalism is really apparent. And number two, like he was very, you, you read that and you see how, how, uh, well-versed he was in uh, say like the history of German socialism um, because he's making this case that like, how can, uh, how can people like Wilson talk about this as a war for democracy against, uh, against Germany 
no, the German socialists, these are the people that have been standing against German autocracy for so many decades are, you know, he talks about Liebknecht getting, uh, getting jailed. One of the, one of the, um, the, the elder Liebknecht, uh, one of the, the founders of the SPD, German Social Democratic Party, getting jailed. So he's very, you know, he's very aware of this kind of international context and the movement that he exists in. Um, and yeah, so I, I, but at the same time, he was incredibly effective as, as Harvey's noted at talking to different parts of, uh, the socialist base, J- Jewish socialists in New York, um, tenant farmers in, um, Louisiana. Um, he was, he was incredibly popular on the speaking circuit throughout the country. And it's because he was really able to talk this sort of American idiom and talk, you know, bringing Jesus Christ in the way that he would, that, that he talked about socialism. Um, and that, that stuff wasn't, uh, it wasn't just a rhetorical ploy. He really, like, he really was a socialist because he, you know, it, not the only reason, but certainly because he believed in the teachings of Jesus Christ and was like, well, this is what socialism means in, like, practical terms and political and economic terms. It's, it's putting this stuff into, it's structuring society. So, so, it's, so it's built on cooperation and not domination. So, um, yeah, I, I think uh, he he was he was a true uh, radical. I mean, you you read you read stuff, and he he calls himself like a, a proletarian revolutionist and stuff. But at the same time, he's he's uh, you know in the next paragraph, he could be talking about how we need to um, you know we need to rid the world of like the rule of mammon and stuff, and and very very kind of talk in very biblical terms too. So he's a very um, very interesting figure in, in that way too. So it's, it's, I guess you can, you can overstate it sort of in both ways because he, he, he combined a lot of different influences, I guess you could say. By the way, this is stimulating so many different thoughts in my head. So like, if I can just say, and I hope I don't forget my point. Um, so when Dan was talking about Germany, I was thinking to myself, but you know, to what extent um, Debs and his brother being Victor and Hugo um, as Frenchmen, one wonders to what extent they would ever have bowed to, to any particular uh, German socialist, just for the record. It's a sidebar that occurred to me. I also want to note in the Debs uh, burger thing that it was Debs who really did, originally, even before he was a socialist, was in favor of interracial unionism, okay, whereas Berger had a streak of racism that I, I you know, that's, that's crucial. Um, but, but one of the things I was going to say, and I... I I'm, this is not a disagreement. This is the complexity and the wonders of Debs is that even as he is committing himself to this internationalism, okay, and, and, it's, and for which he's going to end up going to, uh, to, jail, to prison, he defends himself when he, when he doesn't have a lawyer. By li- and this to me is one of the most, this should be a, mo- a movie moment. I wish somebody could put this into a film. He, ha- he stands in the courtroom and defends himself did I already talk about this with you, uh, Ben, the last time I was on? He calls into the courtroom these American radicals from the revolution. Well, Thomas Paine, all the way through to Abraham Lincoln, he defends himself with Lincoln by, by the fact that Lincoln opposed the war with Mexico. I mean, he brings them in one by one. And you can imagine it would be this great sort of 1930s black and white film with these ghostly images, if they produced it that way, in which all these American revolutionaries are standing alongside him in the courtroom 
I mean, it's just a re- remarkable moment. And in that sense, he's an internationalist. Be- Sorry, you know, I'm a painite on this stuff. He, he described himself in Payne's own words as a citizen of the world, okay? So, oh, sorry, I just, I'm listening to you guys. I can't tell you how much fun it is to be with younger people. Because <laughs> I, I, I didn't tell everyone, but I, I actually retired from uh, teaching this summer because I couldn't stand the thought of doing online teaching. So uh, I figured I, 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 could, I thought it was so you'd have more time spending. I could step out and hang out with you guys on Zoom shows. <laughs> Yeah, uh, so so I'm I'm glad you you brought us up to uh, the Canton speech uh, and uh, and World War One, uh, and so because actually I, I thought I thought maybe Daniel you you could kind of um, you know fill us fill us in on on, on some of this because because uh, World War One is an incredibly crucial turning point both for uh, for the international socialist movement. And for uh, for this this fledgling uh, you know socialist party in uh, in the United States that had as as Sean points out uh, earlier uh, you know got had some really impressive uh, successes very recently before that right like in the 1912 election uh, for example and of course as we know right spoiler alert uh, never kind of achieved the sort of permanent mass status. Uh, as, as labor and socialist parties in other countries, right? You know, but was certainly well on its way uh, to that by uh, by then. Uh, so, so what does the outbreak of uh, of World War One uh, do to the socialist uh, movement globally? Sure. Uh, so basically, that's the second big crisis of Marxism, and I think we're actually still, in a real sense, living in the hangover of that moment. Because Ben, as you mentioned earlier, the big dream. Of, of socialists before World War One is that no way is the international working class going to fight each other in Europe uh, to defend the prerogatives of the declining aristocracy and the rising bourgeoisie. Uh, but of course, uh, this not only doesn't happen, but the German socialists actually endorse the war and the Reichstag. And the German socialists endorsing the war has the effect of splitting the socialist movement into effectively two parties, the SPD, the Social Democratic Party of Germany, and the USPD, the Independent Socialist Democratic Party of Germany, which is essentially anti-war. So, so that's one. There's a splitting of the socialists. And so therefore, German socialism turns against each other. And so you have throughout the 1920s and the 1930s, the communists and the socialists fighting each other to, to the degree where some of the socialists actually align with nationalists to uh, essentially off communist leaders and that they're not really able to come together against Hitler in a meaningful uh, in a meaningful way. Uh, so this was really obviously a, a bad thing that 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 happens. Um, second, uh, the the the. World War One and particularly the total collapse of Russian society essentially prevents an opening for the Bolsheviks to seize power in what is initially a coalition and then eventually to overtake uh, the Russian government in 1917, taking Russia out of the war. But also more importantly, um, particularly as the German socialist movement is split, uh, moving the center of gravity of international socialism east from Germany 
to the Soviet Union. And this is a big thing because you have to remember, Marx is really, you know, let's say uh, bullish on German socialism. Uh, and he, there's there's some comments and letters to Vera Zasulich late in Marx's life about Russia and communism and Russia and socialism. But I think this is like very old Marx. I don't think it's actually central to his theory. But what happens is, is that the Soviet Union, a peasant society, is the first society to be truly taken over by a quote-unquote proletariat revolution. Now, people will uh, argue and continue to argue about to what degree is a Leninist vanguard party representative of the real proletariat. But let's leave that to the side. The important issue is that international socialism essentially becomes international communism with the rise of the Soviet Union in 1917. So you have this split between what would later be termed by historians uh, Western Marxism, essentially Germany and West, and so Eastern or really Soviet uh, Marxism, which is essentially East of Germany. And there's, of course, an orientalizing thing going on here where Western Marxists are essentially trying to sort of other Soviet communism is not in the Marxist tradition which is related to Cold War politics and blah, blah, blah. I won't go into that. But essentially, all the major thinkers that most people here are probably familiar with, people like Walter Benjamin, people like Theodore Adorno, Max Horkheimer, um, these are people who are responding to the failures of World War I, which is why, uh, I'll stop this, but this is really interesting, this is why in the 1920s, Marxism begins to be uh, complemented with new psychological theories. You have Gramsci on one hand, which is a focus on culture, and then you have the introduction of Freud into Marxism as undertaken by the Frankfurt School because they're basically trying to explain why did the workers fight each other. And if the material conditions of production actually said that they shouldn't fight each other, they have to turn to psychological explanations. So by the 1920s, Orthodox, or what would be based as vulgar Marxism, becomes less and less of a thing as sort of a psychologically informed Marxism begins to um, go throughout the world. And I'll let the, the specialists on Debs and American socialism speak about that. But this is a real break in the history of international socialism. And we're still living in that overhang, I think. Yeah, because the... When I was your age, I was a Gramscian specialist. And I... I I want to defend him against any accusations of psychologism, okay? <laughs> um... Let's say culturalism. Gramsci recognizes the importance of culture, I think, and of the means of information processing and the importance of newspapers and the importance of, like, meeting people where they're at. Um, I don't mean psychologism in the way that... Which is actually, by the way, where I all the way through this, I've been thinking about the connection between Debs and Gramsci, just for the record. Oh, yeah. Well, no, that's interesting. I definitely want to follow up on that. My big objection uh, to Gramsci is that Gramsci scholars uh, keep on seeming to uh, to raise uh, children who run for president as Democrats. Uh, so clearly something is going very wrong there. Uh, but, I know, right. And, and I was part of that same sort of Gramsci co- cohort. I didn't know his father. I just knew him by way of everybody else. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Sorry, that's great. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, um so the anti-war uh, wing of, I mean, it's a little bit of a simplification, but, you know, but, but I, I think that it's roughly true, true to a great extent, right? The, you know, the anti-war wing of the global socialist movement, or, or at least a big part of it, uh, ends up becoming the later uh, communist movement, right? You know, when, when, uh, when, when the socialist, you know, the communist international splits off uh, from, uh, from, the, from the socialist international after the Russian Revolution, uh, and 
in in the U.S., it's uh, it's a little bit of a different story, right? Because uh, you don't, um, you know, whereas there is obviously a uh, an American Communist Party, uh, it's largely formed, as is my understanding, uh, from uh, the uh, F- foreign language federations of uh, of the Socialist Party, right? So these these groups of uh, of recent immigrants uh, from various European countries who still, who would like have socialist newspapers in their own languages, right? You know, they'd have little federations within the parties. These were really the, the bulk of what became the American communist party. Uh, and so, um, and you have a lot of radicals uh, in among native born um, or people who might not be native, whatever, you know, more culturally integrated, you know, uh, American socialists, who don't join the Communist Party. Uh, Debs uh, doesn't do that, right? Even though uh, his initial reaction to the Bolshevik Revolution was 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 support and solidarity, right? I think he actually says somewhere from the crown of my head to the soles of my feet, I'm a Bolshevik. Uh, so uh, so I, I guess I was, I was wondering, Sean, if, if, you could, uh, if you could start talking a little bit about um, about both about Debs's reaction to uh, the uh, the outbreak of World War One, uh, and and why that ends up landing him in prison, uh, and and then more generally what that does to the American socialist movement. Sure. Yeah. I mean, it was a it was a pivotal moment um, in international socialism and in, in um and in the U.S. as well. Uh, as you said before, the Socialist Party was. Uh, among the the few that actually stood against the war, um, and Debs was Debs is no outlier. Debs was against it from the beginning. Um, actually, I mean, what, what's interesting is that it actually united the party. I mean, Berger opposed the war. Um, really, every faction of the party opposed the war, and there were some there were some uh, exceptions to that, but it wasn't. It was mostly like. It, it was mostly like the well-known figures that had joined the party, say like Upton Sinclair left the party um, and some other um, prominent socialists, but not, not really leaders. Um, it was like intellectuals and, and some of them were affluent members um, opposed the, or supported the war and left, but they were a really small minority. Um, the, the, the most prominent leaders and the rank and file of the party um, all opposed the war. Um, so yeah, so they they passed a resolution in uh, 1917, the St. Louis Proclamation that opposed the war, um, and the the repression of the party was really fierce uh, through those years. Um, the mailing privileges of most of the publications were revoked. I think some of the only exceptions were some of the foreign language newspapers because the <laughs> because the censors couldn't read them. Um, but yeah, for the most part, I mean, all the, all the major ones and the, and the smaller ones as well were, were shut down. Um, it was basically illegal to, to speak out against the war. Uh, so lots of, lots of socialists. Um, I think we, we've sort of hinted at this, but the, the speaking circuit was really central to socialist politics. Um, and so Debs was always on the speaking circuit, but lots of other, um, Lots of other leaders were were really well known because of the because of the um, the speeches that they would give, um, especially sort of regionally. Like they would, someone like Kate Richards O'Hare was really well known in the Southwest and the Midwest, and she 
grew up in Kansas um, and then lived in St. Louis for a good chunk of her life. She did organizing in Oklahoma. Um, and so she was, she was actually one that was jailed as well. Um, yeah. So they, they, the, just the repression was immense. Um, but you know, it's like something for, for socialists today, it, it's something to be really proud of that, like the, the uh, enormous destruction on a worldwide scale of world war one, um, and the kind of repression that, that they faced, um, domestically and, and they, um, you know, they didn't back down. Um, yeah. Yeah, and, and Harvey mentioned earlier uh, Debs' famous speech in uh, Canton, Ohio, that, right. uh, denouncing the war uh, that that got him um, that got him put in prison uh, right. by, uh, by the Wilson administration, uh, and and both that speech and then his later courtroom defense, so, you know, very much worth reading, like 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 really like eloquent and, and moving, you know, kind of socialist poetry almost, right? You know, there's the uh, mm-hmm. You know, as long as uh, as long as there's there's a lower class, you know, I'm in a you know as long as there's a criminal element, I'm of it. As long as there's a soul in prison, I'm not free. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I, I guess you know, one of the last few minutes we've got here to take to kind of move to some of the things that um, that the contemporary socialist left, you know, could could maybe learn from from some of this history. And I think thinking about World War One is a good entry point into that. Uh, because of course, uh, at the beginning of the discussion, Harvey, you know, mentioned, uh, you know, Joseph McCarthy's, you know, uh, um, uh, tomb in, uh, in Wisconsin, uh, and, and World War One is, is really the, the beginning of, of where you get the sort of predominant strategy for, for countering, uh, radicalism, you know, in America in, in the 20th century, right? Which is to say, that it's it's uh, it's it's anti-American. You're 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 undermining us as we're in uh, you know some existential struggle against foreign enemies, uh, and and of course that was obviously what was going on uh, throughout the Cold War, uh, and it's it's very much worth thinking about now as as certainly uh, certainly the Trump administration, but also frankly some of the Democrats are very interested in starting a new Cold War uh, with with China, right? Like you know, and uh, and I think. That I've I've seen you, Sean, uh, talk about this uh, a while back on Twitter, right? You know that this is this is something that you can really see uh, divide. You know, like this 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 question of of how to approach you know um, American hostility and belligerence, you know, to to China is something that you could really see uh, dividing uh, the contemporary left in the same way that something like World War One uh, divided uh, divided the left that existed at the time. Yeah. Do you want me to speak on that? <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, I don't know. It, it's, uh, it's hard to predict, I guess. Um, but I, I do think, I mean, it wouldn't, I don't know, it wouldn't really divide. I don't know. It's hard to say it, it's, I am worried. I guess I'm worried that in, in the very justified desire to, um, to push back against anti-China rhetoric and really hawkish behavior towards China, there will, there will be people on the left that start essentially in my view, uh, issuing apologetics for the Chinese yeah. uh, re- regime and, and issuing and losing sight of the facts again, I guess to bring it back to what we were talking about in the beginning, just like the central core of socialism is democracy and, and, you can't, <laughs> from my perspective, you can't, 
you, you can oppose you can oppose uh, U.S. militarism without um, talking about the advantages of the Chinese system or something, or or like whitewash the Chinese Communist Party's authoritarianism. Um, yeah. because that's that's not saying in solidarity with like the workers that are getting that can't form that can't form independent trade unions in China. Um, that there's no kind of civil, basic civil liberties in the, in the country. Um, so yeah, I, I think it's going to be a difficult, uh, it, it's a, it's a difficult line to walk, I guess. Um, yeah, but it's, it's, I think it'll be important. Problems in both directions, right? On the one yeah, hand, absolutely. You, you, you have what we've already seen a little bit with like yeah. Trump trying to ban TikTok, uh, and some of the reactions that I've seen from, you know, very progressive people who I might've hoped would, would know better, right. Have, have sort of very much gone along with that kind of kind of anti-china rhetoric you know and mm. uh uh and and i don't know how far that would hypothetically go right you know but but I, I think that i think there are people who who could make a mistake in the direction of not opposing that as aggressively as they should right uh without naming any names and then in the other direction right what you're talking about right that the uh that uh overreaction to that and you know whatever i already see this kind of thing right could um you know, could lead some people with, with good internationalist instincts to, as you say, fail to be in solidarity with Chinese workers by making excuses for uh, authoritarianism with suicide net characteristics. Yeah, I mean, one of the, as, as I was listening, I thought, one of the things, that, and Sean really was expressing a very Debsian view, and that is, I mean, Debs, Debs didn't defend governments, okay? Debs defended and his internationalism was a working class internationalism. Um, in fact, it was probably more working class internationalism than even perhaps socialist internationalism, but I, I could be wrong on that. And, um, and, I, and I think, you know, it's hard to take a hundred years ago and apply things, but, we, but if we think about the kinds of concerns we have, then learning the, then learning the language that, of Debs might actually be helpful today, but I, I can't get into it too much because I haven't thought through enough. Yeah, uh, if, if I could add to this, um, I, I think that to me, the clear leftist position uh, would be to condemn the PRC and specifically the CCP, which is very obviously authoritarian and not a friend uh, to, to the working class, let alone, let's say, the Uyghurs or, or, or what have you, while also recognizing that should, let's say, in the current context, uh, a genuinely socially uh, social democrat actually win the presidency, they're going to have to deal with the CCP and probably Xi, given that he's essentially made himself dictator for life, uh, to deal with things like climate change and inequality and pandemic, and that the United States is just not going to go to war um, over over the Uyghurs or over Taiwan or over Hong Kong, given the various geopolitical realities and, and frankly, the reality of nuclear weapons. Um, and I think, to me, that's the quote-unquote social democratic position, a social democratic internationalism tempered with what 
international relations theorists call realism, I would call uh, a classical realism, which is actually a, a theory of IR created by ex-socialists for a variety of reasons. Um, but I do think that, and I'd be curious to hear what you, you guys think, there's a very sincere confusion on the left generally about the importance of socialism, um, sorry, of democracy to socialism. Um, so as Sean probably knows, Jack had been published an article essentially saying that socialists want civil liberties, you know, you're to be a part of a socialist society. Uh, and that Matt McManus uh, space. Yeah. 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 And so that got a lot of pushback and which strikes yeah. me as so bizarre because people are seem to associate sort of liberties like the freedom of press, freedom of association, freedom of speech as bourgeois capitalist. Um, and I think that there's, I mean, to be honest, to be frank, it seemed mostly like 19 year olds on Twitter, but you know, I think it's important that like we do educational work right now to, to make clear that um, liberal rights um, you know, in actually existing capitalism, they are used to defend capitalist interests, uh, but liberal rights, qua liberal rights, are good things. Democracy is a good thing. You should be able to, you know, have freedom of conscience, freedom of speech, freedom of choice. Um, so I think that'll actually be a, a thing going forward, and hopefully if that educational work is done, people won't, um, in my opinion, very mistakenly and misguidedly valorize the CCP, which is yeah. no friend to social. And, and, and yeah. really, going back to what we've been talking about, about the early history of the socialist left, um, you know, socialists, well, um, I was going to say, especially in Europe, but I mean, if, if you think about the uh, the struggles for voting rights that were going on in, in the United States, um, you know, right up until, well, in some ways now, but like, you know, but most obviously right up until the mid-1960s, right, you know, uh, that uh, the, the socialist left has always been at the forefront of those struggles and, you know, socialists in Europe were absolutely instrumental to, to winning a lot of those liberal rights uh, in the first place. Right. So the, and yeah, I saw some of that reaction. Yeah. Matt McManus is, is a, is a good friend. I've co-written things with him and, and uh, uh, really happy to see him and Jack a bit more, but, uh, but really, uh, but yeah, was, was very unhappy. As you say, you can't, you can't necessarily blame people who are, who are new to this stuff for, for not, you know, uh, having thought all of it through, right? But it does mean that the rest of us need to do a better job of, of doing that educational work, uh, who kind of have this, this, even though his core argument is that um, liberal rights, you know, that socialism isn't counterposed to those liberal rights. So social, you know, socialism is about going beyond liberalism so you can add meaningful content to those exactly. rights, right? You know, that like, okay, that's nice that you have free speech, but then you have a few corporations that, that, that own the press and uh, Amazon workers aren't allowed to speak out about, uh, you know, about uh, the, their exposure to COVID, you know, with, without, uh, without getting fired with no legal protection. Uh, that, so, you know, so socialism is about the, the fulfillment, right, of that kind of expansion of, of freedom and democracy. Uh, and and I, do think, um, I do think that the, uh, that thinking about, this kind of early history of socialism can, can really help us see that. Um, and I just say uh, one thing. I know you got to go for, in favor of David, but and this is in favor of Sean's campaign for, for devs. And, and the fact is that we've got to drop the term liberal rights or bourgeois rights, they're dem- small d democratic rights, and they come out of the working class struggle if you know anything about British and other histories. They're not, 
liberals may well have may, liberals, if you want to call them that, may well have wanted to talk to each other in greater freedom, but the, but the struggle is a struggle from below, and it, it it was that in the late 18th century. Okay. Yeah, I wonder where people get this misguided idea. I I I must be from sort of Cold War era anti-American propaganda. I mean, it's, it's so wild to me that anyone would consider like freedom of, of speech a bad, a bad thing. It's, 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 it's really damaging actually. Uh, and the way it's been defended. Well, it, so also the commun- it also does owe to the capital C communist tradition. If you go back, you'll see the, 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 the reductionism that occurred. That's, you know, yeah. yeah. But, but thinking about, thinking about Debs, right. Uh, and, uh, and the, the way that the Sedition Act was was used to crush uh, labor organizers and the socialist left should definitely tell you something about the uh, the importance of uh, of free speech. Uh, Alien and Sedition Acts, seventeen nineties. John Adams, right? You got it. That's right. Yeah, 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 and yeah, wild. <laughs> Not a good thing. Is that in the wake of the X Y Z affair? Yeah, it's all. Yeah, yeah, right. Right. yeah. All, yeah they they wanted to crush the painite interests there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> not really. I, it's all there. It's all there. No, no, I know, I know. It's just no one knows this history. And it was French, right? It was the French meddling in our elections. How dare they? <laughs> <laughs> How dare they, right? Yeah. Um, so uh, I see. Oh, God. Look, before we go, I want. I do want to. Fa- this is Please, yeah. this is great, and it's great to see Dan again. And Sean and I have sort of known each other for a few years, and this is our first chat, right? I don't think we've been in a room together in any way until now. Am I wrong? No, no. This is the first first time. Right. Yeah. It's a pleasure. Thank you. And indeed, indeed. Yeah. Uh, so I was I was just going to say. Um, so uh, before we uh, before we end the the panel and uh, and start the uh, the Outlaws and Revolutionaries segment, uh, I did uh, I did just want to uh, point out um, that uh, I had been texting a couple of weeks ago with with David Griscom, uh, who now joins us about the uh, the history of uh, the early socialist movement in Texas. Uh, and and that's a uh, that's that's a that's a chapter of this that at some point in the future, uh, you know, some some combination of of the people in the Zoom screen here uh, need to uh, need to come back and talk about. Because I want to talk about the Painite tradition in Texas, in the hill country, <laughs> and I'm not kidding. I'm not kidding. German intellectuals. Yeah, yeah, I'd love to talk about that one day. All right. Thank you so much for coming on, guys. This was really good. Um, really appreciate it. Thank you. Have every single person here back. Yeah. Thanks so much. Love you guys. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks, Ben. Bye, guys. Bye. That was. Um, Daniel Bessner, uh, who is a uh, history and international relations professor and a contributing editor of Jacobin, uh, and um, uh, Harvey J.K., who anybody who's likely to be watching or listening to this is uh, going to be very familiar with, uh, and um, and also uh, Sean Goody, uh, also uh, also from uh, from Jacobin, I should check out all of those people. But I'm now joined, of course, as always, uh, for our comrade David Griscom uh, for the Outlaws 
uh, and revolutionary segments. So, uh, having finally uh, having finally finished moving, have slightly better whiskey this uh, this week. Uh, Congratulations! So, uh, so that's good. How have you been doing, David? I'm doing uh, I'm doing all right. Put on my fancy uh, Brooks Brothers jean shirt for you, and uh, feeling good. <laughs> Uh, I had a little uh, mess call this afternoon um, because the the subject of tonight's uh, segment has some harsh words for it. Uh, So in solidarity with our friends uh, down south, how to make sure. uh, Alipus, it's actually really good if anyone ever can find it on their shelf. Nice. Yeah, actually about a, oh God, uh, I guess almost a year ago at this point, um, I mentioned uh, Matt McManus earlier. so at that point he was still teaching at a university in Mexico mm. and, uh, and he organized the, uh, a, uh, a conference, uh, that, that I went down and, uh, and spoke at, you can find the video of that on the zero books, uh, YouTube. And, uh, and that, that weekend of, um, of, uh, of bar hopping in, in, in Mexico city, uh, uh, drank a, uh, an enormous amount of, of, of mezcal over the course of, uh, of, of a few days and, uh, which, uh, you know, was brutally hungover, but I regret nothing. That was, that was, that was awesome. And I was actually planning on going back there in, um, in, uh, in March. Uh, he was organizing another conference. Uh, he had, um, he had Chomsky lined up uh, for it. Uh, you know, Michael Brooks, you know, was, was talking about, you know, going down at one point and then of course uh, COVID happened. So, uh, did uh, did not get to do a repeat of that uh, that weekend uh, that weekend in the fall. Well, hopefully sometime soon, man. Yeah, yeah, no question. So we uh, let's. So I, as I as I kind of alluded to, um, you know, the last several days have mostly been dominated by my wife and I mm-hmm. packing up all of our stuff and uh, putting it in a storage space, and then then driving for a couple of days. So uh, we we haven't been. You and I have not been in touch in the way that we usually are uh, be, uh, before these, so you're going to have to uh, fill you in. Yeah, yeah. Um, I know, and I should have sent you. Uh, uh, so we're going to do Guy Clark, um, who people in Texas and the people who are fans of like older country music will definitely know. Um, but he's another one of those characters who is with all of these, uh, you know, the Titans, Willie Nelson, Whalen, um, Towns Van Zandt, but, you know, wasn't as well-known, I think, in the general public. Mm. Um, but I, I mentioned that because uh, one of his first songs is a great song called L.A. Freeway, one of his first, like, big songs to hit. Um, and it's the great kind of escape song. It's the song about, you know, packing up all your things, putting the back of the car, and driving out of the city and never, you know, never turning back. Um, so I sort of sent that to you, but... Man, uh, let me just start because this is going to focus on the music because Guy Clark is all about the song. Mm. Um, but just a couple quick you know, things about him. Uh, he was born in West Texas uh, <clears throat> and then ended up moving down to South Texas. So his father was a lawyer um, and you know, opened up a, pra- a, a practice down there. Um, and you know, his high school years were spent working, as a, working a, in a shipyard as a carpenter building uh, shrimp boats. Uh, and he says, that's what changed his life. Uh, this is a direct quote from him though, about getting into music and, and playing a uh, guitar, uh, which is uh, the first guitars I got were in South Texas. You go over the border and buy a cheap Mexican guitar. And the reason they're $12 is because they're not wor- worth a the shit. They're hard to play and they don't play in tune. So to me, the first thing to do was to fix it. 
let's just fix this son of a bitch. I've always had an easy relationship with wood. The first thing you get in West Texas is a pocket knife. You make your own toys. So if that gives you any kind of idea about what kind of a character uh, Guy Clark was, um, you know, I don't know what else, to, you know, what else to say on that. He was really capable, a person, but an amazing uh, singer and songwriter. Um, you know, a lot of his songs lyrics are very simple, but they, they hit really hard. His favorite song of all time. Um, I just think is worth shouting out is a song called uh, she ain't going nowhere, uh, which the chorus says she ain't going nowhere. She's just leaving. She ain't going nowhere. She can't breathe in and she ain't going home. That's for sure. And it's just like that kind of storytelling that he was so, so wonderful at personal favorite song of mine is a song called uh, let him roll. Mm. Um, and it's a devastating, but in my opinion, beautiful song. And maybe I just have a twisted sense of things. Mm. Um, but it's a story about, you know, this kind of destitute older man who's constantly hanging out at the bar with him and all these other people. And it's a tragic love story about, you know, this poor worker at a hotel, uh, who could never catch a break and he loved a woman. Uh, but you know, she was a, she was a Dallas whore, which is a big part of the song. And she continued to turn down his, his last proposals. Um, and he was so devastated, he eventually died. But, you know, in good country music fashion, there's a woman who shows up at the funeral in tears, and it's Alice, who used to be a whore in Dallas. And, you know, here's just some of the lyrics from it, because it's just so well-written, I think. Uh, he says, son, he always called me son. He said, life for you has just begun. And he told me a story that I heard before about how he, loved, how he fell in love with a Dallas whore. Um, I just like the, the lyrics there are just so simple, but they really paint a story, I think. And they set you in a mood. Uh, that's what, what he was so great at. Um, but yeah, like LA freeway was his first big hit. Um, and that started to open up the door for him as an artist. He became really close friends with Towns Van Zandt. Um, and that was a crucial relationship in his life along with his relationship with his wife, Susanna. And they had an interesting relationship, the three of them even. Uh, Towns, as uh, we still haven't done a proper Towns episode, but as I think people you know, might have been able to gather, Towns was always a bit of a mess and was always showing up to stay at people's houses, you know, always need a little bit of help. And they sort of had a, you know, a three-person relationship. I don't nothing sexual or anything like that, but you know, Towns would call uh, Guy Clark's wife every morning. Uh, even when he was on the road, which I think Guy actually had a little bit of jealousy over. Um, but a really interesting uh, group of friends. And we'll get back uh, more to that that story in a second. But it's worth noting with Towns, for everybody, there's a song. And for me, um, that, that song is Dublin Blues. Absolutely amazing song. And I'll just read you the opening lines, and I'm sure you'll realize why I like it so much. Um, the opening lines go, I wished I was in Austin in the chili parlor bar, drinking mad dog margaritas, not caring where you are. But here I sit in Dublin, just rolling cigarettes, holding back and choking back the shakes with every breath. And uh, for people who don't know, the Texas chili parlor bar is a real place. Um, it's right by the Capitol and it's been a pretty famous uh, watering hole for politicians. Um, you know, journalists, no good, no good folks. Um, and obviously a lot of poets and musicians. But the Mad Dog Margarita specifically was named after a group called the Mad Dogs, uh, which, you know, was a group of drunks, poets, artists, journalists, and in true Texas style, politicians, including Ann Richards, um, who was the second female governor of Texas. And uh, it's a great place to go. It's still around today. Um, 
And this is Guy Clark talking about it. <laughs> he says some nasty words about mezcal here, which is why I figured I had to drink some. But he says, everyone was hanging out at the chili parlor at the chili parlor bar, and they started ordering margaritas made with mezcal, which is just horrible. <laughs> the only reason it came about was because nobody had any money, and it was cheap. That was a mad dark margarita. <laughs> um, you know, and you got to remember, too, back then, the kind of mess call you were getting in Texas probably was not. They weren't sending their best. You know? <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. you know, but but Guy although, Clark. Although, although I've got to say, right, a mezcal margarita, like I, I like margaritas, I, obviously, between, you know, between mezcal and, and how. Uh, everybody knows I feel about single malt, you know, uh, mm-hmm. like I, I'm, I'm a big sucker for, uh, for smoky and alcohol. Oh yeah. I mean, it's still, deli- I mean, I love it, but, <laughs> but I, I also wanted to shout out another, um, nervous curtains on, on Twitter. They're a great band, uh, interact with them a lot. Um, and, uh, one of their singers was tweeting, uh, this was a few months ago, but it always cracked me up when he was asking the questions like, does Guy Clark have any songs that aren't about food? <laughs> and it's very true. <laughs> and when he said that, it, like, it hit me because he does talk about food a lot, which is great. And he has some wonderful songs about food, Texas cooking, um, where he goes, uh, get them enchiladas greasy, get them chicken steaks, chicken fried, sure to make a man feel happy to see white gravy on the side. <laughs> <laughs> and, and one of my personal favorites lately, um, where in the live version he uh, mentions uh, – you know, you can tell from the song, we're mighty easy to please. Um, it's a song called homegrown tomatoes. And he says, if I was to change this life, I lead, I'd be Johnny tomato seed. Cause I know what this country needs homegrown tomatoes in every yard. You see when I die, don't bury me in a box in a cemetery out in the garden would be much better. And I could be pushing up homegrown tomatoes. <laughs> um, yeah. So, you know, really sweet, um, really sweet human being. Uh, I told you all last week with Terry Allen, how, you know, they had a funny relationship uh, where Terry Allen said he was going to shove his, a- um, his uh, ashes up a statue of a goat. <laughs> 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 uh, <laughs> so remember him after he passed away. Uh, <laughs> but, um, you know, me, so yeah, so I mentioned before about how uh, he was really close with uh, Towns Van Zant, And I think their relationship is best summed up with the opening line. Cause when Towns passed, uh, Guy uh, was the one who gave his eulogy. And uh, what he said when he opened up his eulogy was, I booked this gig 37 years ago. Uh, <laughs> which is a kind of dark but beautiful and loving way to remember your, you know, your hard-partying friend. Um, and I think to just sort of you know, put this all together, he has a line uh, from an interview he did in the Austin Chronicle uh, where he says, the thing about writing songs is everything is songwriting all you have to do is remember. And I'd like to sort of close with uh, a song that's just been hitting me a lot in the past couple of days, but um, uh, which is a song called my favorite picture of you, which was a song he wrote. Um, he died in 2016 and this came out in 2013 and his wife, I believe uh, passed in 2011, maybe 2012. Um, so this was his like last remembrance of his wife and you know who was a crucial part of his life obviously and uh, you know his musical experience and i just think this is such a beautiful real way to remember somebody and he says uh and he's writing a song about a, a polaroid picture that's 40 years old her it's her standing in a, in a doorway and she has a look that's not too pleased on her face and that's his favorite picture of her <laughs> he says oh and you were so angry it's hard to believe we were lovers at all 
there's a fire in your eyes, you've got your heart on your sleeve, a curse on your lips, but all I can see is beautiful. Nice. And uh, yeah, he left us a few years after that and um, left a, a treasure trove of really beautiful songs and uh, he's so, God, Jesus Christ. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, he's somebody that I highly suggest people listen to because he can take you through some really beautiful, really beautiful afternoons nice. with yourself. Yeah, no, that's that's awesome. Um, yeah, um, yeah. No, I'm 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 definitely going to uh, uh, to check out. Um, and he was a mean. He was an ace guitar player too. Uh, that's one of those things that especially acoustic artists don't get enough credit for is how good they are on guitar. Guy Clark could play, man. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, that's that's definitely. Um, Actually, actually, I think it might be interesting sometime to uh, to go through some uh, some of uh, some of both of our uh, favorite guitarists uh, across genres. Yeah. I, I actually think that'd be really uh, a really fun conversation. Uh, but yeah, I was going to say I'm, I'm definitely uh, definitely probably tonight actually uh, going to uh, going to check out uh, some of those songs. And I'd suggest you know just um, if you can find it. I'm a big fan of just typing in an artist and watching whatever you can find on YouTube. Cause you can sometimes find old videos that you've never seen before. Yeah. Um, but there's a great documentary called heart war and highways, uh, which is a classic at country music, uh, that they go through people like Guy Clark, um, Towns Van Zandt. And it's a really well shot, uh, um, documentary. And in it, there is a young Guy Clark with a Steve Earl and a bunch of other like luminaries. And they must be in the early twenties and they're just at this house party. And it's maybe like 30 musicians just jamming out, playing some originals, some like old country songs together. And yeah, that's a really great, you know, evening, uh, pick me up if you can find it. Anything from Heartworn highways with uh, Guy Clark is wonderful. Nice. Um, yeah, I, I would, so actually I was going to say, um, you know, this, this week I, I got a chance to, uh, uh, to have a, uh, have a glass of whiskey and, uh, and listen to a song that you mentioned, uh, last week, which was, uh, Terry Allen's, uh, there ought to be a law against, uh, Sunny California, <laughs> yeah. which the, uh, uh, the lyrics of which are, are just. Yes. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I know I'll have to find a way to get some of the music uh, to people directly because it's so hard to talk about these guys in the abstract. But really, you know, take your time and, and jump into all these songs. They're all, you know, real worth it. Yeah. Also, uh, I, I've also taken uh, recently a recommendation that you made uh, a few episodes ago and uh, started listening to uh, the podcast uh, Cocaine and Rhinestone. Oh, awesome. Yeah, it's such a good one. And, you know, that's David Allen Coe's son, too. Yeah. Um, which, so he knows, you know, these stories aren't coming from nowhere, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's yeah, a, yeah, that's a great podcast because uh, he knows music so well, not just in the sense of telling the stories, but he's really great at actually like finding sound um, and showing how artists develop their their musical style, which is indispensable. Um, and that's why, by far, it's probably one of my favorite uh, music podcasts because uh, you get the great stories, you get the music. Um, his stuff on. Um, a Rusty Kershaw is probably one of my favorite uh, episodes. I highly suggest anybody um, who's interested, check out that episode of uh, Cocaine and Rhinestone. And also check out Rusty Kershaw because he's a force of nature too. Yeah, yeah. We, we should we should talk about, uh, you know, David Allen Coe sometime. Not, you know, not as, uh, <laughs> you know, not as 
uh, not as politically good as, as some of the, uh, <laughs> no, definitely some, not. Some of the artists we've talked about, but, uh, <laughs> it is, uh, but it is really fun music. Uh, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a big fan of at least, uh, at least a couple of those tracks, but, mm-hmm. uh, but yeah, the very first episode of Cocaine and Rhinestones is talking about uh, Ernest Tubb, and it's uh, it's it's such a wonderful. It's country music. <laughs> I mean, there's a story now where he shows up drunk uh, at the Grand Ole Opry trying to shoot a DJ's name who I can't remember right now, and it's just it's the kind of stories you can only get in that genre, and also probably only in that time. I think in 2020, if somebody showed up at the Grand Ole Opry with a handgun, that probably would be the end. Oh of yeah, yeah, sure. Their career, like a bullet into into the wall, and basically got off with a. You know, I mean, he was he was arrested, but he got off with a "boys will be boys, go home and don't." Yeah, the, the, Texas, the Texas defense, the Texas defense. <laughs> <laughs> Which, for anybody not familiar with that, is uh, is the legal defense where you basically argue that the uh, the victim of a homicide was such a son of a bitch that the world is better off. <laughs> yeah. You basically say, "Yeah, it was a crime, but it was a good crime." <laughs> <laughs> oh lord in heaven <laughs> uh, yep um well um in uh uh two weeks from now uh on episode 10 uh we are going to be doing a special extended outlaws and revolutionaries with you and me of course but also uh matthew sitman uh who's the co-host of the know your enemy podcast uh we're just going to talk about a uh, essay that he wrote in dissent about uh, left-wing politics and country music, so I'm really looking forward to that. Me too. Uh, do you know who you want to do next week? Uh, I'm going to be gone next oh, week, right. actually. Next week is one of the ones where you're, yeah. you're going to be gone, so we'll have to, um, I don't know, maybe we can do a pre-record or something, but we might have to yeah. skip that one. Um, but, uh, but in any case, really looking forward to that in, uh, in two weeks. Um, thank you, as always, brother. This is, this is, this is just the, the perfect way to end these episodes. I love it. It's really fun, man. Well, take care and uh, congratulations on the move. So before I go, I want to take a few questions from the Q and a, uh, John says uh, that he really enjoyed reading Sean Goody's article in Jacobin about uh, about Debs, very informative educationally. That would be the uh, uh, Eugene Debs believed in socialism uh, because he believed in uh, democracy. He also says, can't wait for the book. Uh, there was... Um, uh, uh, Shauna says, can you do music from USA version of Red Clydesiders? Don't know the names of the leaders, but must be plenty of songs about them. I'm not familiar with that, but I'm officially intrigued. I'm going to look that up. Uh, and uh, there's a question uh, about uh, what I have Katie Halper and or Matt Taibbi as uh, guests on the show in the future. Uh, just curious. Uh, absolutely, yeah. Uh, I actually... I am a huge fan of a lot of Matt Taibbi's writing. Actually, you know, he's he's not a um, he's not a radical socialist or anything, but he's a he's a very insightful uh, media critic. Uh, and uh, I recently read his book Hate Inc., which I think is absolutely essential reading for anybody who wants to understand the way that the media landscape has changed and developed over the course of the last several decades. Uh, in a lot of ways, he conceived of that as an update to uh, Noam Chomsky and Edward Herman's classic uh, book, Manufacturing Consent, 
uh, and it ends with an interview with Chomsky about that. But it's also just like a really, it's got all of Matt Taibbi's entertaining writing style uh, and, um, and, and, uh, and his, the way that he kind of sees things at a little bit of a different angle uh, than a lot of different writers would. Uh, he's got an extended metaphor about uh, politics and election coverage and pro wrestling and how you can understand the rise of Donald Trump. If you understand the way that audiences sometimes grow to identify with heels uh, and, and pro wrestling. And anyway, it's a really good book. I would recommend that hate Inc. Uh, as always, when I recommend books, uh, please consider getting them from um, the Baltimore based worker owned bookstore that you can order online from uh, red Emma's. So that's R-E-D-E-M-M-A-S dot org. So, um, so yeah, go to Red Emma's. You can order uh, Hate Inc. Uh, from that if you want to read that book. Uh, <laughs> also, throw in the plug while I'm at it that uh, you can get my uh, book, Give Them an Argument, same name as this podcast, uh, that is coming very close to, to 10,000 sales. We'd really love it if we crossed over that threshold, as well as pre-order the new one, Canceling Comedians While the World Burns, a critique of the contemporary left. So yeah, absolutely. I would love to have Matt Taibbi on the podcast. Maybe that will happen someday. I don't know, Matt. I do know Katie Halper. I've been on her show a couple times. And actually, I, I will, uh, maybe even today, get in touch with her about coming on as a guest uh, sometime in the near future. Uh, Katie, uh, Katie is always very good. Um, so, um, so yeah, uh, I guess uh, the... You know, just just as a, just as a closing uh, thought uh, for for today, uh, I would um, you know I, w- I would say that we're obviously entering into some very uncertain times. Uh, that you know we just had uh, as as we record this, uh, it's been less than a day since Donald Trump went into the hospital uh, for COVID. Of course, that would be Walter Reed Hospital because he's president. Uh, so, uh, not, you know, he's not only getting um, what Bernie Sanders advocates, which is uh, the government picking up uh, everybody's medical bills through nationalized health insurance. He's actually getting treated at a nationalized hospital because that's what presidents do. So socialism for me, but not for thee. Uh, but in any case, uh, that obviously throws a already extremely uncertain uh, election landscape into all that much more uncertainty. I know a lot of people think that uh, the, that uh, Biden has it in the bag. I wouldn't be certain about that. Uh, I think Biden does probably win uh, the popular vote, whether or not he wins the electoral vote. And even if he does win the electoral vote, whether or not enough of those mail-in ballots get counted uh, is a um, is very uncertain, uncertain thing. Um, hell, Biden could have COVID. Uh, he, he could have caught it at the debate. I know he tested negative, but there's an article about this in the New York Times uh, still very much within the incubation period, just because the swab didn't pick up any uh, particles uh, the uh, the first time. Uh, that you know we can't be confident about that either. So uh, so we can really be be heading into some some deep chaos and uncertainty here going in uh, going into the election. And you know earlier in uh, in the episode, again I'm I'm never going to to shame or denounce or scold anybody who has a different take on this. I don't I think that stuff is counterproductive anyway and that's just not going to be my role, but I did give my tactical advice earlier, but uh but I think my 
human advice on a more on a more general level uh, is don't you know obviously we need to respond to developments as they happen. Uh, it is important what happens in elections and all of that, uh, but also you don't want to get too emotionally tied to the ups and downs uh, of of the news cycle. You know, if, especially if you've got a perspective about um, about achieving socialism in the long term, right? That's a, that's a very long haul, uh, given the the dismal play, you know, the dismal starting place that we're at. Uh, then you know, then then you don't want to be you know living and dying too much uh, with what's going on in the news every day. So I guess that would uh, I guess we'll just close with that, right? So so kind of yeah, take a step back. Um, you know, read about Eugene V. Debs, listen to some country music, drink some whiskey, and steal yourself uh, for the long haul. Uh, next week is going to be a libertarian debate with. Uh, Scottish libertarian Anthony Samaroff, uh, and uh, then I'm also uh, what's going to be a pre-record because where she lives, she doesn't get uh, internet on the weekends. But I'm also going to be talking about the election uh, with uh, with Crystal Ball, uh, who uh, who I always really enjoyed her conversations with uh, with Michael Brooks. Uh, I, I know that lots of people have lots of different opinions about her, but but I I think she's very much. Uh, I think that she's she's often insightful, very much somebody who's worth hearing from. So I'm very excited for that conversation. So that's coming up. Um, that's coming up next week. Uh, and uh, that Matthew Sitman uh, extended outlaws and revolutionaries I teased earlier is coming up the week after that. Really looking forward to all of that. Uh, please consider uh, becoming a uh, patron. Uh, patrons get early access to every episode as well as uh, exclusive essays and regularly scheduled Discord office hours, group voice chats, um, and the, the, the solidarity and, and support. You know, if, if you like what we're doing, uh, if you want um, everybody who's involved in this to, you know, to get paid a living wage, uh, please do consider becoming a patron. Um, otherwise, uh, even if you can't do that, uh, please uh, like and subscribe on YouTube. Uh, uh, please uh, rate and review us uh, on uh wherever you listen to podcasts. Uh, and that's it uh, for this week. I really appreciate everybody who's watching and listening and supporting this project. Left is best. <laughs>